0: The Hollywell Trust Podcast Testimony Series, sharing experiences of those affected by the Northern Ireland conflict and those people who have taken the decision to take positive steps for the future. Now here is your host, Eamon Baker.
1: Hello there and welcome. My name is Eamon Baker. Today's interviewee is Seamus Heaney. What you will hear from Seamus is the impact of the conflict or the troubles or the war in the lives of the Heaney family and the wider community. And you will hear Seamus speak about the work of the Old Library Trust, or indeed the Healthy Living Centre, in Central Drive. Before we begin, I would like to thank our funders, who are the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, Derry and District Council, and the Community Relations Council.
0: Available for free, downloading and streaming from the Hollywell Trust podcast, SoundCloud page and iTunes, we have our first of our Civic Conversations specials. I'm here to talk about how we can create a
1: city with youth in mind. Between April 2014 and March 2015, 8,888 self-harm presentations to A&E. And within that number, there are young people between the age of 15 and 19 that are half them cases, so it will be
2: 4,444 cases in A&E. The percentage of 100 young people who wanted to leave was 95. So 95 out of 100 young people did not see their future in dairy and did not intend to come back, which means that for your generation there's not going to be anybody left and for those that are here there won't be a voice to speak on your behalf
0: that's a civic conversations with young people in mind available for download from our soundclouds and itunes pages on may 2nd we stay up to date with all new episodes from the hollywell trust podcast and testimony series follow us on soundcloud.com search for hollywell trust or subscribe to us on itunes again find hollywell trust
1: The shame as if we've only an error.
0: Yep. Um,
1: you know, one of the one of the things that I know about you and your family is that you lost your brother. Mm. Sometimes when that happens, when we say you lost your brother, your brother shot dead, brought daylight mm. in the street in Derry. Sometimes when that happens, possibly an outcome will be that the the family and individuals in the family will be embittered, will be angry, will be um, want revenge. Would you say something about how how that experience, that Mm. deadly experience, had been for for you? Oh yeah,
2: and, you know, I would include, my other members of the family, their reaction might not have been as extreme as mine, but certainly, when Dennis was killed, number one, the impact was overwhelming, in every sense. It was just as though the ground opened up and swallowed you, you know, that you just lost all sense of... Connection. I often think of the impact of his death on me as being very raw, in the sense of you know raw meat, cold, bloody, dark, excruciatingly painful. You know that, and you know, and you, you can in many ways of de- trying to describe that kind of loss. But it's almost it's almost um, hard to put into words. Just the physical and mental impact that it has you Yeah, it's so very visceral absolutely. and also mental yeah, yeah very 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 and you know in the first weeks and months probably a year after Dennis was killed I would keep seeing him I had dreams that took me down into his grave where his body was decaying and all of that sort of thing you know really really awful and we just they have to deal with but that's your, your brain just kind of takes over, your subconscious mind seems to just uh, pound you with this stuff, you know.
1: What age were you then?
2: Uh, Dennis was, I was about 25, yeah. something around about then. And I can always remember even years subsequent. You, you kept busy, you know, uh, and then when I'd be away doing something, maybe a weekend break or something of that nature, especially in the line of work that I was subsequently involved in, I'd be away doing workshops and stuff and then I would be somewhere on my own and I would just get overwhelmed with grief and sense of loss. And I would, so I would always find time to go away somewhere. Sometimes even at a wedding or something like that, you know, or at somebody's birthday party or anything. Those, those celebratory things, they just the overwhelming sense of loss would would, would overwhelm you. So that that's continued for quite some time. And even today, I would still have flashbacks like that, you know, um, so many years later. Now. In the immediate aftermath of his death, combined with all of that hurt, there was a deep anger Mm. and a desire for revenge, and I did want to kill people, there's no doubt about that. I had planned how to kill people. Now, that's the irrational part of your brain working, you know? Uh, And because we lived in the times that we did live in, that kind of irrational behaviour was almost rational. You know, so it you know could be understood in the context of looking back now. You think, geez, how would you ever allow yourself to get into that kind of a state? Yeah, uh, but
1: one, one of the things that's mm, coming to mm, me as mm, well is this is not an there's what you're describing mm, as individual, mm, but then I would think of you looking maybe at your dad, mm, daddy, your mum. Mm, your other members of your family and what that might also precipitate oh. in you. Would that
2: would be true? Oh, I think so. I mean, the hurt that they, my parents, in particular, suffered. You know, and every member of the family really that 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 ground that you know even tighter. You know, you know, my father died in 85, so seven years after Dennis uh, was killed, he died, and you know, I, I believe his death was precipitated by Dennis's death. You know, he was a young man; he was 63. But I just think because he carried all of that wounding and grieving inside himself, I think it just caused damage to him. So that all kind of added as well. And then, you know, associated with Dennis's death, I would have lost a lot of friends, former comrades and things like that as well. And uh, I had been, as you know, in jail uh, not long before Dennis was killed. I had a very good friend there, Jim Gallagher, uh, who we struck up a really good relationship within the prison and uh jim was a young guy he was probably 17 when he went into jail uh, he was 16. even younger mm. he was I, I got out of jail first and a year later or so he got out and we had agreed to meet up and invited him up to my house for a meal you know to celebrate him getting out i remember on a i think it was a thursday morning walking down park avenue and a car pulled up beside me and it was jim's family and they told me he'd been killed and I shot dead by a British soldier the night before, and I just, I couldn't believe that, I couldn't take that in, you know. So that was very wounding well. so all of that, and a number of other things that happened of course along along the way with other uh, people that I knew who were killed or seriously injured, all of that kind of made me feel a desire for, I don't know if I would call it now, uh, revenge. Although I think an element of it was revenge. Uh, I think a big part of it was just the need to see some form of justice, some kind of atonement for what had been done to me as an individual, to my family, and to what I would see as our community, our society as a whole. You know, as a consequence of historical injustice that's gone on for a long, long time. So. There's, also there's, there's a whole lot of reasons why I didn't do what I did, what, what I wanted to do. You know? um, <laughs> yeah. What are they? Well, <laughs> well, one I was married, I had a young family, and I had ended up in jail when my youngest daughter, then Katrina, was 18 months, and I was away for three years. And you know, people talk about individuals in jail, but the reality is that we got on with life in jail. I mean, in fact, jail could be quite fun at times you know you lost your immediate freedom but you were still just looking after yourself you didn't have any other responsibilities uh, within jail but my family my wife and family they had a struggle to survive outside that really really was a burden to me you know in the sense of that i had really let them down badly let them down you know doing this stuff that i thought was right but you know at the end of the day who was going to look after my family when I was in jail and many children had you two children at that stage yeah yeah so she was at home where, where it was home home at that time was Glen Owen mm. so that was a struggle and I always recognized that that was a real struggle for her that, You know that that what we had in by comparison to what we imposed on our families was nothing you know so I, I thought about all of those things and I don't know what turned me around, really. You know, I I'd find it very hard I even mean, to put on the words or even to, you know, pinpoint the moment when I, I decided that... These so-called the, 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 Yeah, the, the, well, the, 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 the whole notion of wanting revenge, of wanting to, be, you know, take make use of violence as a means of getting back at the other, just, uh, be, I think, a, a slow realisation that violence wasn't going to do it. Well, and, and the old adage, violence just begets violence. It just brings more pain and more misery to more people. It doesn't solve problems. So I think somewhere within me that kind of idea began to take hold, you know. Uh, it might be the old Catholic upbringing, I don't know, uh, quite possibly. I wouldn't say, I, I wouldn't never have described myself as someone who had a tendency towards violence ever in my growing up years. Quite the opposite. I, Abhorred violence. I avoided it at every opportunity, and yet found myself in overwhelming violence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you <laughs> as a young man then, uh, from the age of kind of 17, 18 onward. So I had got two things working against me. One, I was—I didn't have a propensity towards violence, uh, in, an innate, in tendency. Th- yeah. But I also would not have considered myself a pacifist, and still don't really consider myself a pacifist. I think that there are arguments for uh, use of violence when all else has failed. You know, I do believe that. I think that people who are suffering from injustice and oppression have a right to use violence against their oppressor. Now, but alongside that, I also believe that that violence will cause continuing wounding to not just the people it's directed at, but by the perpetrator as well. You know, so I think that violence uh, you pay a price, pay a price for being involved in violence, whether you're on the receiving end or the delivery end. Do you consider that you paid a price, Seamus, um, for what you were involved in? Well, you know, the ultimate price. I think uh, I, I feel great responsibility for what happened to Dennis. You no, know, uh, and while I wouldn't take away from him his individual right to make his life decisions, I think the fact that I was involved in the area before him. Probably influenced him to become
1: involved. Is that like uh, this is pop psychology, and is that like a, a burden of guilt? Is that what you're talking about? Well,
2: uh, I certainly think it was guilt for quite a while. Uh, I think I think I've rationalised it since, because for me to take that on would be to deny him, you know, has <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So uh, I wouldn't do that. I think that he was very well aware of what he was doing, albeit that he was a very young man and. Uh, wouldn't have had the full sense of the impact that violence was going to have on him and on the society and when you're young you're inclined to take risks you're inclined to disregard the value of your own life you're inclined towards the good of others you know and to do what is necessary in order to bring about good and you will use whatever means available to to achieve that but i think what you're sometimes dismissing is the value of your own being you know so you haven't really had the opportunity to consider uh, what it is to be a human being uh, and a fully aware human being and i think the more aware you become the more you understand the importance and preciousness of every life Mm -hmm. and particularly of your own life you know that that we have this one opportunity to be Mm -hmm. and uh, we shouldn't dismiss that lightly i think within society because we are forever used and manipulated and controlled by others, in power in particular, we some we, let, we place a lesser value on our lives than we should. I, I think that very possibly Dennis, at that young age, didn't place as great a value on his own life and his own well-being as he could have. You know, mm. I certainly think that we were part of a society of young nationalist republican males and females who felt that sacrifice was important to the cause self-sacrifice and ultimate sacrifice I, I kind of come full circle on that you know i don't think now that any cause is worth a single life i really don't just full circle yeah it's funny you know uh, and i don't think it's just the fact that i've got older and softer or anything of that nature hmm. i just think you realize how vitally important every human being is you know uh, in this world of existence that we're a product of some kind of unique experience within the universe. How it's come about people debate for Well, eternity, I suppose. Uh, I ter- set, tend to take the evolutionary route. I so don't put any god figure in control or charge. But even within that, we exist against all the odds of existence of, of a thinking human being anywhere in the universe, and yet we exist. And we only have, as far as we are aware, we have only one chance of it at existence, and we should value it. And it, you know, and I think that. If we could really understand our place in the universe, our momentary place in the universe, we would take much greater care of ourselves, we would take much greater care of the other human beings around us, we would value them more, uh, and we would never do hurt or harm.
1: Uh, you see, you mm. then taking you back, it's beautifully mm. expressed, I love the way you expressed mm. it. I'm thinking of the soldiers, mm. I, I, in my mind I'm thinking soldier A, soldier B, soldier C, mm. who were involved, and the killing of Dennis mm. uh, so they're precious human beings mm. so perhaps you've come full circle in relation to them or am
2: I wrong well, you'd be very wrong <laughs> no I, 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 you know then I think that that's uh, I think sometimes people put themselves outside the peel of humanity and there's lots of per- perpetrators to do that I think even those people who are predatory in their behavior, uh, Where that's preying on uh, women, or through serial killing, or children, or whatever, uh, I think that those people place themselves outside of humanity. As soon as you begin to prey on your fellow human being, then you're no longer human. So going back in to in the that word, sense, going back to the word justice, going back yeah. to just, well, going back to, I would rather go back to the soldiers in particular. Okay. And I think it's these soldiers, these soldiers who are trained in a particular way to kill, and that was certainly during the time of should to kill. These are specially trained soldiers within um, the the British Army. I don't think all people who become soldiers are necessarily bad people. In fact, I don't believe that at all. I think most people are there for uh, good, if sometimes naive, reasons. But the system that produces an elite soldier trained to kill, kills the spirit of that soldier to enable that individual to go out and commit murder on behalf of whoever it is that that sends them out Uh, and I think once you cross over that line then you're a very different type of person Mm -hmm. now for me where I'm concerned with these soldiers lives is I have no desire to see them killed or uh, even to see them in jail but I do have a desire for a justice which Mm -hmm. is based on acknowledgement of what they did and they carried out cold blooded murder of my brother. And because Dennis is identified as a member of the IRA, a terrorist, easily labelled, the state feels that it has no uh, responsibility for acknowledging any wrongness in the, in the carrying out of his death. And I believe that the state needs to be challenged in that. And these soldiers, very eloquently, eloquently described by my mother in a poem that she wrote, were simply instruments of the state and carrying out as uh, murder. So in terms of atonement and acknowledgement, I think it's really important that these truths become known within the greater society. I think that we have to, uh, part of what we need to be doing coming out of a conflict situation is we need to be giving people the space to not revise but to look back at what has happened in this society and to name it for what it was and not to uh, present it as something other than it, what, what it was. We were uh, caught up in a bloody conflict where all sides committed awful atrocities perpetrated one against the other. Uh, if I think if we were to go forward, and it's funny, you listen, I'm, I'm not involved in politics at all at the moment, but when you listen to all the machinations around, you know, the political debates that take place at Stormont and elsewhere, you wonder if people have really thought deeply about the impact of the Troubles on our societal structures, you know, because we don't really seem to have learned the lessons of the past. We haven't been able to deal with a past in a way in which lays to rest a lot of the hurts and wounding uh, that took place on all sides.
1: What lay into rest, Seamus, what sort of ease you of healing mentioned in relation to Dennis uh, and thinking of your whole family here, maybe?
2: I believe in the truth. The healing of a loss, right, is eased by the truth of what actually happened, what took place and what the intention was behind those actions. And this doesn't just apply to me and uh, to our family and the loss of Dennis, but this applies to all families. You know, so if you're the son or daughter of someone who opened their door at midnight and a gunman appears and shuts them dead in their hallway or whatever, or you're a passenger in a car or a bus that gets blown up or, you know, whatever, you have a right to know what the truth of that situation was. And not just some some kind of uh, plan Explanation of the times we were in, or, or whatever. You know, I think you have to know what's in the hearts and minds of the perpetrator, uh, what their intention was, and why. So for me, what I know, but what I want affirmed by the state and by the soldiers who killed Dennis, was that they knew full well what they were going to do that day, that Dennis was a target for them, and that they had the intention of killing him that when they first shot him, they had the opportunity to arrest him and they chose not to. They chose to end his life by firing three more fatal bullets into his back through his heart. So that was their intention on the day and that's what they did. But what they want to be able to say they did was they defended themselves because Dennis was aiming a gun at them. Now, we all know that that's not true. The forensic knows that that's not true. But the lie that keeps on getting told is that these soldiers were heroes overcoming terrorism uh, in a divided society. And that is a lie, that is not true. So my uh, reason for going forward is to expose those lies. And to do that in a challenging way, which we as a family are doing, and we continue to pursue Dennis' case. And I suppose, my ready acknowledgement is that every other family that who has been hurt, wounded, or suffered loss in the society deserves the same truths, whatever the same background, kind, whatever their background, whatever the situation. Absolutely, yes. yeah, absolutely.
0: Coming up on the Hollywell Trust Testimony Series, Caroline,
1: who as a teenager met a British soldier at Bishop Gate, arguably the love of her life, and it's, it's a story of joy but it's also a story of loss. walking down towards the diamond. Yeah. And he was on the right-hand side of the street. Now this foot patrol's coming, but I'm walking, but he makes his way on the right-hand side of the street that sort of, where are level together. And he turns round and he goes, I'll not be long, he says, until you and I, he says, I'll we'll be walking down the street together, hand in hand.
0: On May 4th, join Eamon as he interviews Caroline Brown. Go to soundcloud.com and search for Highwell Trust, or on iTunes, search for Highwell Trust.
1: W- would you accept a description of yourself as a peacemaker, Seamus? And could you speak about any such peacemaking activity that you've been involved in? <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> uh, well, well I, I kind of don't like to put labels on myself at all, right? Uh, uh, so I resist kind of any kind of labelling. I know that since the late 1970s or so, I have become involved in community development. And I might have come, I, you know, and if I'm honest with myself, I might have got involved in community development because there was very, very few options open to somebody coming out of jail uh, in, in the 1970s to find any form of employment. So community development was something that I could get on with where I didn't have to apologize for who I was or what I was. But in the doing of that, I think I very quickly found a way of trying to give something back. Give something back? Ah, if that doesn't sound too corny. You know, so um, for me, you know, because in this place where we are in Craigan, uh, the evidence was all around us of injustice, poverty, inequality, stripping away of people's dignity. and. You know, people have been treated as second-class, third-class citizens. That was all around. I mean, I, I could see that, you know, very quickly. And so my first resolve was uh, to restore dignity to people, or to help restore dignity to people, so that they could see themselves as fully-fledged human beings. I'm sorry, they keep coming back to that term, but I mean, that's how I see it. You know, That's how mm-hmm. I see, when I look at somebody now, I try to look beyond all the kind of outward appearance and just see the human being that exists there. As a slight aside, uh, I know that I've had, because of my involvement in peace building and storytelling and things like that, I did have an opportunity to talk to a servant member of the PSNI who was a former member of the RUC and whose father was a former member of the RUC who was killed in a baric bomb. In Armagh, I think it was, uh, some during the 70s as well. And we kind of had a conversation, and I told him my story, he told me his story. There wasn't a hell of a difference in the impact that those losses had on us as individual human beings. In the course of that conversation, I said to him, You know, when we were involved in the war, we told ourselves that it was the uniform we were shooting not the individual uh, uh, but I think we always knew that there was a human being inside the uniform. I think we can tell ourselves all sorts of stuff and I think that uh, we can convince ourselves of the rightness of our cause, whether, irrespective of what that cause is and you know look look at the kind of ratcheting up for the next global conflict uh, you know where we Look at the victims and perpetrators, and look at who's good and who's bad, and who's evil, and who's who needs to be dealt with. Who are the terrorists in our midst? And you can see that the preparation for war uh, uh, being ratcheted up, and all the subsequent propaganda that gets flooded out in order to encourage impressionable young men and women to go and do what needs to be done for the cause, and whether that's the state cause or whether that's you know the call for freedom or whatever it happens to be that happens in all societies all across the world I kind of looked at it from my point of view as a community worker and said what small thing can I do
1: to restore dignity yeah and you just give an example Mm. there of hearing the story from another community Mm. from the former enemy Mm. so uh, is storytelling being part of that community development
2: approach and is storytelling I think it came later uh, I think storytelling has certainly has a value, but I think that when people enter into that if you don't enter into that with a willingness to listen deeply to, to the other to the other, then your purpose or agenda is skewed. You know, sometimes people enter into storytelling in order to score a point, or in order to prove the rightness of their case, or whatever it happens to be. I think that You have to enter into it wholly and fully and acknowledge or try to acknowledge the other person in the same way that you would like to be acknowledged. So I think for me that when you're in situations like that, then understanding and uh, acknowledgement, compassion and learning can come from that. Mm -hmm. Um, But we tend to avoid all that. We don't like to be too honest with people, really. If we can too, open. too open, too honest. Uh, we have an instinctive kind of resistance to doing that, especially with people that we perceive as our enemies. So th- those kind of things had to be very sensitively uh,
1: approached. Yeah. I guess when you started sure. in community mm. development work, I think in uh, maybe in Central mm. Drive mm. many years ago, that uh, the war was still
2: oh, it was raging.
1: <laughs> it was raging. Therefore, the opportunities to meet with and hear. uh uh, with empathy and with compassion the other would have been
2: less than they are now or have been since the peace process you know there's plenty of fragmentation within this community and has been down through the years uh without having to resort to you know the differences between this community and and another community and i don't see our, our division as a simple kind of protestant catholic unionist nationalist republican kind of divide i don't see it like that at all Although I think that it tends to get labelled like that. But for me, you can only... I long ago lost the notion that you can sort sort of come a, a riding, riding in on a great white horse, carrying a, a flaming sword or whatever, and sort all the world's problems. But you can't, that doesn't happen. Uh, and I think that what I did realise is that you can make small changes you can make small impacts one-to-one impacts or maybe slightly bigger than that simply by doing what you feel is right doing the right kind of things at the right time uh, with people as opposed to two people or what would be examples of those the right kind of things at the right time with people I think the fundamentals of community development are about trying to uh, help people to help themselves Mm. that can be easier said than done You know because you can get frustrated with the pace with which people move uh, and you say I'll just do it myself and and that'll be that but I think if you're patient then people will become involved and will begin to take ultimate charge and control of their own lives and their own futures going forward that's what the challenge is in this kind of work now I was involved in community development for a long number of years and I always remember saying to people you know things will be better in 10 or 15 years time then 10 or 15 years passed and things weren't better and i'm not going to preach here but i mean there are obvious structural inequalities in society right and most of the people that i'm working with are at the sharp end of that inequality and we, we our tendency is to blame the individual for their inability to make the most of life in any set of given circumstances whether that's education or health or addiction or whatever other issues might impact on people. Poverty being the big one. But getting out of poverty is a really hard struggle. Mm. You know, individuals can escape and do better for themselves. Right. And you'll see generationally, you know, here, uh, children of people who were in deep poverty doing good for their children. So their children, a generation or two ahead can do better. But it's not just a matter of doing better, I think it's a matter of collectively finding a way in which we can get ourselves out of poverty and inequality by working uh, towards shared aims, shared goals. And to do that at a community level is difficult because people have different agendas, people have different needs and wants. And what will satisfy one won't satisfy another. So, you know, if you look at our political divisions and you take them into a community or a society, when you try to get people to work together collectively, people will work if they see an advantage for them.
1: That advantage might be for the party, well, might be for them yeah. personally.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Rather, but see, if there's the no
2: advantage, people will fall away very quickly. And I think that the peace dividend, so-called. Uh, for Northern Ireland, the north of Ireland, has not materialised for the people who suffered most. And the people who suffered most are the people who uh, were at the sharp end of poverty and inequality, and who were also at the sharp end of the conflict and the bloody consequences of that conflict. They suffered the most. Would you
1: say, Seamus, that the people say we took a line from Central Drive right through and back up to Craig Heights mm-hmm. and beyond, that the people there, or even the people of the whole Cregan, earn as per now, as they were relatively you? speaking. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, relatively speaking. Does that frustrate you, given yeah. your commitment Hugely. over many, many years? Hugely. Uh, you know, because all of the emphasis on economic renewal, and you do get fed up listening to the jargon after a while, you know. But uh, <laughs> uh, but all of the emphasis on that, when you take a place like Derry which is also at the sharp end of structural inequality, you know, mm. uh, because of its location and because of its political location. For Derry to stride ahead, you know, to become a place of prosperity, they say it requires something like 20,000 jobs in the next five years, right? But the reality is, if you produce 20,000 jobs for Derry in the next five years, 15 or 18,000 of those people who take up those jobs will come from outside of Derry, because Derry doesn't have the skill base in order to fill all those jobs so if you want to put that to rights then you've got to generate the skill base and the skill base begins with our education system and preparing people for a way out and a way ahead uh, as a process of education and I don't think that we're rigorous enough as a society to do that we all operate in our separate silos uh and we don't look at the community need as a whole and say let's collectively put all our resources to improve in that situation within officialdom and certainly within the statutory sector people are really really good at presenting their professional barrier to particular roles uh, that are not their role that's not my responsibility and i think we need to kind of get beyond that to say we all have a collective responsibility here to try and improve the, the welfare and the uh, opportunity for people who have been denied opportunities for generations. And that's a matter of, of resources, you know, so you've got to focus resources on those areas of greatest need. In an overwhelming way, we throw pitiful crumbs at it and we expect huge outcomes. But you're not going to turn that around unless you bring the best resources that you have available in order to address the underlying Mm. issues. And we don't do that, you know. And people become exhausted and they get burned out and da-da-da-da. Where I find a difference for me, you know, and it's a personal thing, uh, is in the Healthy Living Centre here. And, you know, I got involved in community health back in the early 90s. And I I was kind of cynical at first because I was looking at, you know, people coming from a community health perspective and their community development role and thinking, "Mm, what are these people up there? Uh, So I kind of went along just to keep an eye on what they were about, protecting my territory, as you do. This is the CHIP program? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I began to see that actually when you involve people in their own health and well-being, they get an immediate, almost immediate payoff. So people come now into the Healthy Living Centre and become involved with what we're about. It's not abstract. It's real. They get a something. Conceptual. Yeah. They can so feel it they in can, their they, body. They They're on a bike. Yeah. Mentally. Yeah. They, they socially. They, yeah. Be, they get it immediately. You know, uh, or certainly within kind of, you know, a few sessions have been involved in whatever it happens to be. Uh, and that impacts for all age groups. You have literally. As I understand it, thousands of people
1: now coming through this. Mm. Is well, is we that overstating? Uh, no, we don't, not
2: really. No, we have, we we would have a footfall of about 2,000 people a week coming through week. their programs. Yeah. Uh, how many of that 2,000 would be from Craigan? Is the b- biggest majority? No, certainly, the 85% of yeah. more than maybe. You know, but yeah. uh, it's hard to break that down, even. You know, but uh, and, and what what I was. What I don't do, although sometimes funders want you to do that, you know, is to have some kind of clear boundary or demarcation. Uh, but I just see people, if people are in need, they're in need. It doesn't matter to me whether they come from the bottom, what, from Cregan the, or from the waterside.
1: Yeah. What's the best piece of feedback that you can remember, say, in the last six weeks, you know, given we're in the New Year's, and, you know, that, that you've heard or, or a recent piece of feedback that has really lifted you, that you would have went home to your wife and said, well, you hear what I was
2: told today. Well, thanks for putting me on the spot. Um, <laughs> oh. um, well, you know, I, we've just had a, an evaluation report carried out. and uh, External? External, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, reports report what you want them to report. I understand out. it. Yeah. Yeah. But I think some of the comments were that the Healthy Living Centre was a lifeline for me. That uh, people who hadn't been out of their house for years maybe because of bereavement, you know, or a condition, suddenly find that there's a new opportunity for them. There's a, you know, uh, very, say, a safe space where they yeah, can go yeah. and be welcomed, yeah. it's hospitable, I'm in here. And there's lots of that. And, we, you know, we would have, you're, you're familiar with the DEED project, which is looking at, you know, uh, people with dementia and trying to create the city as a dementia-friendly city. And they're almost a forgotten people. You know, it's not so much that we push them into the corner, but they take themselves into the corner. And we don't do very much to try and bring them back out. For me, uh, one of the great accolades, we got a Pride of Place Award very recently, an All Ireland Award for Best Community Project, Community Health Project. And you know, you take great pride in that. Now, and it's not about awards, you know, I I think I can honestly say it's not about awards, but I think it's very important that you acknowledge people uh so we try to do that uh annually see, here acknowledge our champions acknowledge our staff uh, staff and yeah, participants mm, uh, all, all of that users yeah so you asked asking me about peacemaking yeah between healthy living and peace yeah. peacemaking i think there is i would find it hard to call myself a peacemaker right and that's not to say that i haven't got involved in trying to lead people away from yeah violence i've certainly have done that i don't think you can argue a case for that i think what you can do is you can try to influence uh, and persuade people to a different way of being right and for me that one of the core things about the healthy living center was as a place of healing and we had a literal program built into our original application which was around community healing and i you know i think logically to me it was that a place that has been ravaged by war and conflict needs a place of healing in order to be restored mm. as, as a society right for me the healthy living center has been a place of healing that i'm hoping is spreading out beyond the confines of a building, so the concept is not really healthy living. It's not really about buildings. It's more about people. Mm. You know, in a kind of a, when I imagine it, right? Uh, for me, it is a place of healing, a place of peace, of tranquility, where possible. Although we've had our moments, and that gradually that that seeps out into the wider community. That kind think of thinking. So mm-hmm. it's like, so it's like a, it's a consciousness. It's a belief that uh, we can heal ourselves. That we, as a society, can heal ourselves, and that, and and, and, and it's not easy for me. Sometimes, you know, but I've got involved in arguments with people uh, who want to justify use of violence for uh, contingent resistance to British state and all the rest. I've got very verbal with those people, at times, very verbal. And then after a, a reflect, I think that probably wasn't the right thing to do, because what you did is you met an argument head on. Mm. Rather than trying to embrace the person, mm. a
1: and, human being, and, a, and, a, yeah, the and, a, and allow
2: the allow the argument to go around you, you know, because mm. I mean that, that's not that the important thing is not is not the argument. The important thing is a human being. So treat the human being with dignity and respect and value, mm. uh, and try and see those qualities rather than simply you know a head to head, protagonistic type mm. argument or debate, which doesn't help. help. Yeah. Of course, doesn't help. Uh, but it can be hard to remind yourself at that times, you know, yeah, when you're in it. Yeah. yeah. Of course. So, course. Uh, <laughs> so to that sense and extent, I think I'm involved in peace building. I think I prefer peace to violence, absolutely, uh, without doubt. And I think probably within community development at times we forget that the essence of community development is allowing people to come forward and make mistakes take, you know, the control and ownership of whatever it is, uh, has been shaped or, or developed. And uh, organisations, I think, sometimes feel that they can't let go control, because if they let go control something wrong might happen. Mm. Some, a bad thing might happen. Mm. But I think that's where you have to take the risk and say, okay, let it go.
1: My thoughts, you know, I think we're drawn to the end now, but mm. I suddenly I don't know how this is happening. I'm back thinking about your Dennis. Mm. Is there any way that the very positive work you're doing here uh, is somehow connected to tennis, family?
2: Well, I, th- I think everything's connected. And, you know, we don't start out in life with a very clear path uh, shaped for ourselves, you know, as to where we're going to go and how we're going to get there. answer uh, has been a wee bit more haphazard than most, <laughs> you know, and sometimes out of necessity. But I like to think of it like this. The people I most admire in my life, some qualification here, but the people I most admire in my life uh, were my mother and father. We had a, a, an amazing childhood experience with two people who had very little in terms of money, very little in terms of education, but whose hearts were huge and whose determination to do well for their family came first you know they we were put first all the time my father was an incredibly talented man and in a different world could have achieved great things now he would argue he did achieve great things because he produced for him a wonderful family my mother likewise very intelligent woman very able woman very entrepreneurial woman Uh, against all the odds they passed on to us values a set of values probably the most important thing that stay within our family uh, and which we pass on to the next generation and subsequent generations because of that i'm the person that i am Mm. now where does dennis fit within all of that i think dennis uh, grounds me so that I don't get too far ahead of myself. Um, I think that when, you know, you can be, uh, persuaded to lean in one or other direction, I tend to, in terms, certainly in terms of the politics of this place and the need to resolve the, the conflict, I always go back to Dennis. Always. To what, what do I want from him? What would make value of his life? short though it was Uh, and for me it's all those fundamental values of dignity integrity love compassion uh, justice uh, justice very much so and truth so it becomes quite simple then you know you can become you can all of the other arguments get stripped away because at its most fundamental all we want is a bit of honesty and integrity as human beings I believe uh, and I no longer have a need for revenge. And revenge doesn't mean anything to me anymore. And I don't need blood for blood. But I do need acknowledgement. And I do need truth. And I do need justice.
1: Seamus, Seamus Heaney, thank you very much. And I also need to thank our funders, namely the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, Derry and District Council, and the Community Relations Council. Thank you very much. You can listen and download this podcast and every episode from our soundcloud.com page and on iTunes. Search for the Hollywood Trust podcast. Our next guest will be Caroline Brown. Thank you for
0: listening. See you soon. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for The Hollywell Trust, and on Twitter, it's at Hollywell